0: This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. As many of us head out on this Fourth of July weekend, and in general this summer, on camping and beach trips, we're mindful of many an outdoor menace. Poison ivy, mosquitoes, the horrible burny sun, and the dreaded sand pants. But one of those menaces, above all, strikes fear in many of our hearts. Ticks. Stuck on you. There's just something about a bug that clings to you, drinks your blood, and doesn't leave until it's sated with your blood a couple days later that, for some mysterious reason, freaks us out. In fact, even talking about it now is kind of making me feel a little bit icky, to be honest with you. Anyway, and I'm sorry about this if you're squeamish, Ticks are what we're talking about today on Fordham Conversations. Not just the little suckers themselves, but the problems they cause and efforts that are being made to help us avoid them. My guest on the show today is Thomas Daniels. Daniels is an associate research scientist at Fordham's Lewis Calder Biological Station. He's also the co-director of the Vector Ecology Lab at the Calder Center. At that lab, researchers look at organisms, called vectors in biology, that don't cause disease on their own, but that carry disease-causing pathogens from one host to another. Daniels and his colleagues are also looking to make it easier for people to avoid ticks when they're out and about with an index that shows your risk of being bitten by a deer tick on a given weekend. A little later, we'll hear about some of the possible longer-term effects of a tick bite. But first, Tom Daniels joined me in the studio this week to talk about ticks, how they work, and why we're so afraid of them. Tom Daniels, welcome.
1: Thanks for the invitation.
0: Now, tell me just very, very basic, what, what are deer ticks and what do they do?
1: Deer ticks are—they're um, related to spiders um, and mites. They're pests, basically. They feed on wildlife, um, largely in this area, and occasionally people get involved in the cycle and they feed on us as well. The deer tick specifically is uh, the vector um, of Lyme disease. It—it it brings the pathogen to people as it bites them. Um, it transmits a number of other uh, other pathogens as well. The pathogen that causes babesiosis and a pathogen that causes. Um, human granulocytic anoplasmosis and probably a virus as well. I mean, there are a number of things that this, this tick is able to, to transmit to humans. So, what happens to you if you have these diseases? The symptoms vary. I mean, they, they start out generally like flu like symptoms. You're not feeling very well, you have a fever, general aches and pains. In the case of Lyme disease, it can develop if it's not treated to arthritis problems and heart complications. With Ehrlichia and uh, Babesia, you generally get sicker with higher fever, um, and you feel much, much worse in a fairly short span of time. Can these diseases be fatal? That's the, a debatable point. Generally, they're not. Um, I think under certain circumstances, there have been cases where people are have surmised that um, they were fatal, but generally speaking, they're they're treatable ailments. The key to any of these is getting them treated as early as possible.
0: Now, you say that ticks are pests, and obviously they're pests to us, but they probably fit in with some kind of ecosystem. What, what's
1: their role? Uh, you know, we get that question a lot, and it's one that I really, can't, really can't answer. There are lots of things that are that are out there, and their their role simply is to survive and. Ticks seem to be one of these organisms. We don't really have an indi- any indication as to what the what good comes of having them, but you know that's the case with probably ninety percent of all the animals out there. They keep us humble, I think, is one of, the, one of their roles.
0: So, if all the ticks were to be gone one day,
1: well, I think we'd all be ecstatic. And as much as I like them, um, my primary job is to try and figure out a way to get rid of them.
0: No moving into that job, how do you study ticks?
1: You start by asking, well, what are the interesting questions about this thing? And then if you have a public health direction like we did with Lyme disease, it's fairly straightforward. You know, we're, we want to understand as much as we can about the tick. We want to figure out ways perhaps to reduce tick numbers. And um, and that's the direction we've taken with this thing.
0: How do you actually study them, though? I, I saw in year materials that there was some kind of a catch and release situation?
1: Well, we do. At certain times of the year, there are several different stages of this tick, and the the stage that we're most interested in is the nymphal stage, and that's the one. It's sort of the the mid-stage, and it's responsible for virtually all Lyme disease cases. And one of the things we're always interested in knowing is, well, how many are there out there? And so we actually do uh, mark, release, recapture studies with ticks where we mark them. Um, and maybe that's one of the reasons my vision isn't what it used to be, where we mark them with paint um, and we let them go and we come back on subsequent days and we try to collect them. And from that, the number of recaptures we get, we can try and estimate what the population size is. But we have these fairly low-tech techniques for uh, collecting them. We have a a one-yard square piece of white cloth that we drag along the ground and ticks mistakenly think it's a potential host and they grab onto it. And so that allows us to, uh, to collect them that way.
0: How do you mark a tick? Do you use a very small brush?
1: No, we have these really, really fine tip paint pens, and and now we use um, sort of a magnifying glass. And we've got a, a protocol where we mark them in certain spots um, and then let them go. And then we can actually tell the history of an individual tick on the number of paint marks we have on it and their location. How long do ticks typically live? Uh, this tick has a two-year life cycle.
0: Do ticks have... Uh a different likelihood of infecting people with diseases or dogs or deer or whoever at certain times in their life cycle than at others?
1: They do. Um, the ticks, the tick life cycle is a fairly complicated one. It's got three active life stages over a two-year life span. When the tick is born in August, typically, 2,500 to 3,000 eggs will hatch and larval ticks will one larval tick will come out of each egg. Um, And those ticks are not infected. So the larval stage, which is this very, very small stage, um, and is out late in the summer, um, doesn't pose a risk of infection for anything because it's not infected. It hasn't had a chance to acquire the infection. The tick acquires the infection by feeding on an infected reservoir host. That's a host that is able to maintain a disease agent in its blood system. Um, long enough for a tick to feed and acquire that pathogen. And so, when the larvae feed on white-footed mice, which are very good reservoirs, those mice are able to transmit the bacteria that causes Lyme disease to the ticks. The ticks then acquire that bacteria, and they hold on to it until they're ready to feed again, which is not going to be until the following spring. And so, by the time spring rolls around the following year, and the nymphs are active, which is the stage responsible for virtually all Lyme disease cases we 've got about twenty five to thirty percent of those ticks that are in, uh, are actually infected now with the agent that causes Lyme disease it 's a huge infection rate relative to obviously it had nothing as uh, in its first stage, and now a quarter of them are infected. If those ticks find humans then there 's a risk of really in, uh, passing that agent on onto, onto people. Normally, the tick would be looking for another mouse, a chipmunk, a raccoon, a possum, whatever it can find in the woods, a bird. Um, they'll feed on virtually everything. Um, but if, it, if an infected tick happens to find a human and happens to feed on them for a long enough period of time, then transmission can occur. How long does it have to feed on it for? Well, the nymphal stage will feed for anywhere from anywhere for, f- uh, for four or five days. And so they're not like mosquitoes. You know, They don't come on, take a quick blood meal, and get off. Ticks attach and they stay on for as long as they possibly can until they fed to repletion, until they're fully engorged. Um, And then once that happens, they fall off. And so what we always recommend is that people get a tick off of them as quickly as they can because they've got about 24 to 48 hours, um, in the case of Lyme disease, spirochete, for transmission to occur. So an infected tick will get on a person. That tick has to be attached and feeding for close to two days, before, it can readily transmit the spirochetes that can cause Lyme disease. So you've got that amount of time to get that tick off. And that's why we always recommend that if people are going to be out and about in tick habitat, then they make sure they check themselves nightly.
0: Will a tick stay on you when you're in the shower or whatever?
1: Yeah. There's no... It's, it's on you unless you spot it and pull it off or unless it gets groomed off some other way. Perhaps, you know, you, you get an itch and you scratch it and it could potentially be a tick and you, you might might um, get rid of it that way. But generally speaking, the tick has has, um, a lot invested in staying on you as long as it can. It wants to get as much of a blood meal as it possibly can.
0: Well, whether you're currently enjoying your morning coffee or your blood meal, talking to you, Dracula, you're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we are talking about ticks, My guest is Tom Daniels, an associate research scientist at Fordham's Lewis Calder Biological Station. In a few minutes, we'll hear from some sufferers of chronic Lyme disease about their experiences. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Tom Daniels. So there's ticks, and then there's the way that we feel about ticks, which I think could probably be described for most people as sort of abject fear and disgust. Why are ticks so scary to us?
1: Well, I think it has to do with their... Habit first of all, of latching onto us and then not letting go, um, but also they're blood feeders and you know fundamentally we have a problem with that. Um, it's not uh, It's not a great habit as far as we're concerned, and and the fact that they transmit disease only makes it worse
0: ticks seem to be way more of a worry than they used to be. Is that true? And if so, why?
1: They are more of a worry than they were. You know, if you look back in the 40s and 50s, people were getting something called Montauk knee out on Long Island, and everybody just assumed it had something to do with... They really didn't know, realize that it was probably Lyme disease early on. But ticks were generally not very common then. And what we've seen over the past few decades is that the tick numbers have really gotten gotten higher. Um, And that's correlated with our movement into tick habitat, and so our lifestyles changed with suburbanization. We've moved into tick habitat. We've um, we've sort of exposed ourselves to what is out there. Um, and we also made the habitat such that the things that ticks feed on, the mice, the chipmunks, the the deer, are also taking advantage of the changes in landscape that have resulted as a as a result of us going out into that habitat. So as the host numbers have gone up, tick numbers have gone up as well. So our fear is sort of based on the fact that we seem to have a lot more of them than we used to.
0: So are there more ticks in the world than there used to be, or are there just more ticks in our lives?
1: I don't know about the world. Um, Certainly in our lives there are. Um, This um, Ixodes scapularis, which is the formal name of this tick, was very uncommon um, back in the 50s and 60s. Um, In the 70s, we started seeing that um, people were getting an illness that wasn't quite diagnosable, in a sense. Nobody quite understood what it was, and it ended up being Lyme disease. But it wasn't until the late 70s, early 80s, that that illness was associated with the presence of ticks, and tick numbers have been on the rise ever since.
0: Why are there more ticks?
1: Again, you know what? We think it has a lot to do with um, our own lifestyle, moving into habitat. This is a woodland tick. And so it's out in the woods where the wildlife is, um, feeding on whatever wildlife it can come in contact with. As we started moving out of urban centers into the suburbs and and clearing wood lots um, and putting our houses in the middle of what used to be pristine woods, we find that um, the wildlife is now using our front and backyard. Um, And the ticks have taken advantage of the fact that... um, In some ways, we've actually made the land more hospitable to the animals that ticks feed on. And so tick numbers have gone up as a result of these wildlife populations also increasing. And that's happening at exactly the same time that we're now in tick habitat where we weren't before. And so it's a fairly complicated mix of things that have gone on to sort of bring us to this point as far as um, tick-borne diseases.
0: So if we're sort of living among ticks in a way that we didn't used to before and they're more common in, in our habitat, what are the sort of ripple effects of this?
1: Um, well, one of the ripple effects clearly is the fact that we've got 23, 24,000 cases of Lyme disease occurring each year. Um, and that number seems to be you know on, on the rise to some extent, even though we know that we know about ticks, we know the risk they pose. We know how to protect ourselves. We still are in danger of encountering infected ticks on a fairly regular basis. And that's a clear, clearly one of the most significant ripple effects of of moving out there. We've got these other ancillary problems, too. We have more deer car collisions than we ever had. We've got more um, rodents that are uh, invading our attics all the time. I mean, there are a number of things that, that come along with actually moving into the suburbs that um, are more of a problem now than they were, let's say, Two or three decades ago
0: now you are involved in a project that is looking to sort of help people know when it might not be such a good idea to go outside because the danger of ticks is high tell me about the tick index how does that work
1: well the tick index is something we've developed over over a long span of time um, we've noticed and others may have as well that you know your risk for t- tick bites is not uniform through the entire course of the season everybody knows that the summer is a time when ticks are out but you're not at high risk the entire summer, even though ticks are out. Numbers vary over the course of the season, and we've been monitoring that for a number of years. And so we have a pretty good idea of when tick numbers are going to be low, when they're going to rise, um, about when they're going to peak, and when they're going to start to decline. And so our idea is, with the tick index is to give people a little more more of an accurate view of what their risk is on a particular Week, um, and we we chose to do to make sh- make the index available for a weekend, since most people are out and about in the weekend. It's 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 our attempt to to give us as close to real time information about what their risk is as as we can make available
0: and what kinds of factors do you put into figuring out what the risk is
1: well one of the things we do we have the, a number of sites that we sample in the course of a year but we have one particular site at the Calder center that we we sample two to three times a week from from late april through the mid mid to late um, November, and so ticks are active that entire time, and by monitoring tick numbers over the qu- each week, each and every week, several times a week, we're able to determine whether or not it's a good year or a bad year for ticks, whether or not numbers are on the rise, whether or not numbers are on, on the downside, whether or not we've reached peak. Um, the past couple of weeks, for example, the tick index has been a 10 um, because we're, we're, we're at peak, essentially, for, for the Lyme disease risk at this time of year. Um, we haven't figured out the index for this weekend yet, so I don't know if it's going to still be a 10. It may go down. Um, that's a possibility. But but um, that will be dictated by the kind of sampling that we do this week.
0: One last question. Do we really need to be as freaked out about ticks as we are?
1: I don't think we need to be freaked out so much as we It, it always helps to have information about um, what the true risk is, and that's one of the reasons we want to generate the index is that you have more information on which to make a good decision about what your activities are going to be. I don't want to under downplay the the significance of having any one of these tick-borne illnesses. They are not pleasant. People do need to be aware of what their risk is, but it helps to know if your risk is twice as high one week as it might have been two weeks ago. Um, because then you can take, you have a little more information um, that you can use to make a, a good decision about what to do. People are concerned about ticks, and they should be, um, but personal protection measures are a help. And so, um, you know, in terms of asking whether or not people should be freaked out, there are still things you can do about minimizing your risk. Even if risk is high, there are repellents that work. Um, You can put clothing on that helps reduce the access the tick has to your skin. Um, You can be out in certain habitats, and maybe uh, spend a little less time in habitats that are higher risk. Um, And those are the kinds of, that's that's the kind of information I think people want to have.
0: Well, Thomas Daniels is an associate research scientist at Fordham's Lewis Calder Biological Station and the co-director of the Vector Ecology Lab there. Thank you so much, Tom.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty just after the show this morning it's cityscape with george bodarchy on today's show new york's rooftops that's ahead at 7:30 but first as tom daniels mentioned tens of thousands of people are infected with lyme disease every year but what if the disease never goes away for many sufferers of the controversial chronic lyme disease that is exactly what happens they suffer from an array of symptoms whose effects are worsened by the fact that in many cases doctors aren't sure if they actually have a disease And indeed, if chronic Lyme disease actually exists. Many sufferers of chronic Lyme find long-term use of antibiotics to be helpful. But as we hear in this piece from Radio Netherlands Worldwide, living with the symptoms and with believing that you have a disease that some people don't believe is real can be tough.
2: I'm Chris Chambers, and I have something called chronic Lyme disease. I was bitten by a tick eight years ago, and I call it chronic Lyme disease, but there are still doubts, you see, because it's one of those new diseases that's only been discovered in the past few decades, and the bacterium that causes it is perplexing and dividing the medical profession. Now, chronic Lyme disease is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. So those with it suffer twice from the pain, but also from the unknown, the uncertainty, And so, so much ignorance.
3: My name's Elizabeth Rice. Anne Maher from Maryland. Ken Ward-Atherton. Cecilia Malincheck. I'm David Phillips.
4: I've had it since November 1999. 13 years now.
3: Since
5: 1998.
4: Nearly
6: 11 years.
5: I became ill in 1976 with a sort of meningitis type of illness.
6: Initially, I was far too ill to try and find out what was wrong with myself. And then I just crashed out. Within
5: two or three days, I had... um, Extreme fatigue, inability to concentrate, unable to even drive a car, aching legs and aching arms. Went off my feet, visual problems, sweats, bone pains, muscles, felt dreadful. Um, Usual stuff, neurological tests, uh, nothing was diagnosed.
4: And then I got a letter back saying, all the tests are negative, you are now clear, all is well, and I hope you're feeling better.
3: And that was far from the case. (laughs) Never heard of Lyme disease, or none of my doctors did either, I'm afraid. (laughs) You look fine.
6: They say you look really well today, and in fact you feel dreadful. Your head's going to burst, you can't think straight, you don't know how you're standing up, you feel exhausted, your bones are aching, your muscles are aching. Um, You've got pins and needles and numbness, and it's just horrendous, it really is. But it's only... It's only by thinking, right, I'm going to beat this. I'm going to win it, win, win and get through. And it's the only thing that keeps you going, really. When I realised that my GP thought that my illness was all in my head and I just realised that she hadn't done any other clinical tests, she hadn't offered any sort of treatment, um, she started asking how I got on with my parents. And I thought, oh, there's something very wrong here.
3: I was offered antidepressants, and I'm afraid that was, like, just the end for me. I said, there's no way I'm taking antidepressants until someone tells me for definite that I haven't... That someone that knows about disease tells me I haven't got it. And I said, if whenever I see this specialist, I come back and they say there's nothing wrong, then I'll take my antidepressants, but not until then.
4: It's very difficult to say I'm really not depressed. I'm just de- depressed about the fact that nobody recognises or won't look at the entire body and see all the symptoms together. They tend to send you away and say, well, it's all in your mind and this can be very distressing because you begin to think that <laughs> you really are going completely dotty.
5: Well, it started, it started one Sunday afternoon with the most awful headache and I was driving along and I had to stop the car and throw up, you know. In fact, I was so alarmed that I went straight. I was so unwell I drove straight to the casualty department at a hospital and they said, oh, flu, you know. And it just, I mean, it went from bad to worse, you know, sweats, uh, soaking wet of the night, bone pains, muscle pains, then blurred vision, and then I went off my legs in about three weeks. Couldn't walk, it was wobbling all over the place. I uh, went into hospital. I'd trained in nursing originally, so I was a registered nurse and I knew at that time, you know, when, that's why I drove myself to the hospital, I knew there was something dr- dramatically got a hold of me, I felt so unwell. And I was discharged uh, with a a query diagnosis of MS, um, stroke viral infection, and given antidepressants to take.
2: I've been told myself a number of times that there's nothing wrong with me that a psychiatrist can't put right. But it's nice to hear, though, that there are some in the medical profession who seem more enlightened. Like Dr
7: Andrew Wright That's the history of medicine. You look back at other illnesses which were called psychological, and we look at TB, epilepsy, schizophrenia. These were all thought to be psychological illnesses until the cause was found. And I'm sure that in the not-too-distant future, the same will be um, seen in illnesses like chronic Lyme, that once we understand things, they become respectable. But, I mean, in medicine we do this, we have this um, defence mechanism whereby if we can't explain something, uh, one way of dealing with it is to make the patient the problem. Because it's their problem then, not our problem. And that gives us an easy way out. Now, I'm not saying we do that deliberately all the time, but I mean, certainly subconsciously, I'm sure that happens a lot in not only medicine, but in lots of um, professions. Um, And and many patients do come and see me, unfortunately, unfortunately, Um, with horror stories about how they've been treated, um, how they've been told um, that it's all in the head, um, that people have been sectioned, um, um, children will be taken away from parents, you know, one extreme. Um, But certainly, yes, many patients say to me, well, I don't think it's my uh, mental state, but when the seventh or eighth consultants told you that it's your mental state, you start thinking, "Mm, maybe it is but at the end of the day um, I don't believe it is although you can get associated psychological problems as with any chronic illness and also Borrelia itself can cause acute mental illness Um, uh, but I do think this uh, idea that the profession uh, my profession uh, has of um, labelling illnesses that it doesn't explain as psychological has gone on for a long time and will probably continue for a long time as well
3: One consultation with an infectious disease specialist and uh, he said, uh, he he told me I hadn't Lyme disease and if I had Lyme disease, I had had adequate treatment, right? So my husband said to him, well, if Anne was your mother or your sister, like, what would you recommend, you know, to do with her if she's so unwell? And he said, well, she doesn't have Lyme disease. I just said, look, I said, I... Don't expect every doctor or consultant in the country to know everything about every disease, but I just wish that if you're not sure of something, that you send me to someone that does know something about it, this particular thing, because I said I'm convinced I have it. He gathered up my file, got red-faced, and out the door, and I never saw him after. (laughs) He just, just totally lost it.
2: So what is this parasite that causes so many problems and yet it's so difficult
7: to detect. It's just been classified as a potential bioterror agent now by the US government because of its incredible abilities to um, escape um, uh, our attempts to kill it. It's the most fantastically clever adapted bacteria there is. It can um, hide itself from our immune systems um, in ways which we probably couldn't even begin to think about. And for most people, probably carrying this bacteria, they don't even know it's there, which is the ideal situation because bacteria that just want to quietly reproduce want to be quiet. They, They don't want you to attack them. And I think probably what happens in people who become ill is that You recognise them as there for some reason, and then they fight back. And it's the fight back from the bugs which um, makes you sick. It can um, uh, change its form, so it's a shape-shifter. It's normally rather like a wiggly snake, but it can go inside cells and lose its cell walls, and it can hide that way because your immune system can't recognise it without the cell wall proteins. It can um, uh, become a cyst, which is a dormant form, which can lie there for years and you never know it's there. It can pinch pieces of membranes from white cells even that are supposed to kill it and cloak itself in that membrane so your immune system thinks it's another white cell. Um, it has the most incredible DNA genetic material, which it can use very rapidly to adapt to the changing situation that it finds itself in, if it's under attack or, or, or something similar by the immune system or the body's defences, it can rapidly respond and um, it can disseminate in deep into tissues and basically hide there where it's safe.
5: Uh, I don't think you're ever really okay, you get to a level where you, you can survive and move along and do your job. I mean, I've, I've continued to work over 30 years and you know, I've paid for a house and all you, you know. And when I think back, I'm sort of rather proud of myself, knowing what I know now, that I've had to struggle, and it has been a struggle. And uh, it's just a matter of soldiering, you know, on. I mean, what can you do? Um, I haven't got to the point where I've been so depressed that, you know, I'm you know, wanting to end it all. But, I mean, you know, you do feel pretty miserable. So it's just, I've just had to soldier on, really. I mean, on, on the good spells... Um, you know, I can look back now, feeling better now as I am with with combination of treatments, um, that uh, you know, actually strange enough, I started some new antibiotics as it happens about three months ago and I've heard this from friends who've been ill and for the first time after a couple of weeks, I had a window of what life, you know, I looked at the flowers and I looked around me and I, th- I felt as if I'd just woken up after 30 years you know, that is an incredible feeling you know, it makes you think that life's worth living but you do feel cheated, you know, when you get that improvement just for that short time. And up to now, I'm feeling much better, thank goodness.
6: You get more out of life because you've been so ill and you've felt close to death very many times. And when something happens, you see a beautiful flower or a tree and it's a joy and you think, oh, the air is beautiful today. And Just the little things in life mean so much, things that a lot of people take for granted. It's the free things in life, going for a walk, because you can go for a walk that day rather than being in bed. And even when you are in bed, sometimes you think, well, at least I can read. (laughs) You you look on the positive things in life,
0: at least there are a few breaks in amongst the pain. That piece produced by Chris Chambers for Radio Netherlands Worldwide. from WFUV. This has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.